Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. The campaigns that are succeeding right now have found a way to connect through our new digital reality while also paying due attention to first-in-the-nation voters. In fact, some campaigns are now doubling down on New Hampshire, the state that is the state that they think could launch them to the White House, and one is Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado. Thanks for having Senator, me, Adam. Thanks for being Great here. to be back. So, uh, you're still working towards the back of the pack, but there are some good signs developing for you here. What's the strategy moving forward in New the Hampshire? The strategy moving forward is that we're going to have 50 town halls in New Hampshire between now and the primary. Uh, I'm going to answer every single question. I'm going to tell the truth, which I always do. Meet people in their living rooms and in their businesses, and I believe uh, build momentum coming out of New Hampshire. You were one of the first to really vocally stand up against Senator Elizabeth Warren on the Medicare for All issue. We see her momentum is kind of stalled right now. Do you think your arguments have made a difference in sort of changing the outcome I, of the race right I, now? I do. You know, I'm the only person in this race that's fought for a public option for the last 10 years since we passed the Affordable Care Act. Nobody else can say that. And I'm the only person who wrote the bill. And it was very clear to me that the politics of Medicare for All were going to be toxic for the Democratic Party. And, and I'm glad that now we're really realizing that and Elizabeth Warren seems to be backing off her position uh, and people you know don't think that we should follow Bernie Sanders over this ideological waterfall of his we have got to create universal health care for the American people I think we can do it in three years with my plan what we can't do is spend the next 10 years fighting a losing battle for Medicare for all when what we've got to be fighting for is an economy that works better for everybody, jobs that pay more in this economy, the chance for people to retire with dignity and a decent education for kids in America. That's what we need to be focused on. This may be kind of philosophical, but why is it in the greatest country on earth with the, the richest country on earth, why is it we can't have health care for everyone? It's an outrage. We should have health care for everybody. I think it's a moral outrage, and I think it's an economic outrage. I just think the best way to get there is with the public option that I've proposed. I think that we can get there in three years, whereas if we do it with Medicare for all, we'll never get there because we'll never win. Uh, some developing news this morning. Sounds like another mass shooting uh, as we record here on Friday morning in Pensacola, Florida, Naval Air Station. Still facts coming in. A uh, number of people wounded or injured, it appears. What's your plan uh, to end mass shootings? You know, we, we've seen mass shootings in Colorado for the, for the last 25 years. My kids are 20, 19, and 15. I believe we should pass the background checks that Nancy Pelosi has passed in the House. We passed those in Colorado almost 20 years ago after Columbine, the same ones. And every year, 2 or 3% of the people that try to buy a gun uh, are denied a gun because they're murderers and rapists and domestic abusers, people that don't need to have a firearm. Uh, I also believe that we should limit the size of magazines. Nobody needs a hundred round magazine in this country. And after the Aurora movie theater shooting, uh, we limited the size of magazines in Colorado. We're a western state. We're a second amendment state. But that doesn't mean that you don't do anything. And our kids have grown up believing that the United States Congress has been captured by the NRA. And we've got to change that. 
Do you believe that Beto O'Rourke made it more difficult? We don't hear a lot of Democrats talking. I'm sure this will bring the issue up again, but guns have kind of fallen by the wayside. Do you think that Beto O'Rourke's plan for mass confiscation scared some people off? I think it did scare people off. And I think where we need to be focused is on the common sense reforms that, that we can get done and will make a difference. It would have made a difference to Colorado if, if that guy didn't have a 100-round magazine, you know, and was limited to five, let's say. It would have made a difference if we had background checks. And, and that's what we got to keep fighting for. Right now, Washington is hyper-focused on impeachment. But when you talk to voters out here on the First in the Nation campaign trail, it's not issue one. It might not even be in the top five or top ten. What does that tell you about the political merits of this case moving forward? I think that politics doesn't have anything to do with it. You know, Donald Trump forced this on himself. He gave Nancy Pelosi no choice. We're going to go through this process. I hope that as we go through the process, we remind everybody in America why it's important for us to subscribe to the rule of law and why the president is not above the rule of law. But the reality is we're going to end up fighting this out at the ballot box. And I think one of the things we can show the American people is Donald Trump doesn't believe in fundamental aspects of the democracy. He doesn't believe in separation of powers. He doesn't believe in the independence of the judiciary. He doesn't believe that he's um, uh, that, that the, the law applies to him. I mean, he's still fighting to keep his tax returns a secret. And this is the kind of stuff we got to get past. And we need a president who will actually get up in the morning telling us the truth instead of spending all day watching cable television and then lying to the American people. We can do better than that. How does your campaign survive if you are stuck at your desk in an impeachment trial in January? It's going to be hard, and we're going to have to be imaginative. I mean, I made that promise knowing that, um, that it was possible that we'd have the, this impeachment trial, and we're going to have to figure out virtual ways of doing it in the evenings while I'm there. But I've got a constitutional obligation, just like everybody, other person who's in the Senate, who's in this race, and I intend to fulfill that. Which is quite a few of you. It, it you is, know, yeah. Two of the candidates who are not going to be stuck in the Senate, Vice President Biden and Pete Buttigieg, yeah. uh, who are doing fairly well right now, and they're in that lane that you need to get through. It seems like with Mayor Pete, uh, he seems to annoy some of the uh, candidates. His success just coming out of nowhere. Is this Pete? Does he annoy you? Well, he doesn't annoy me. I mean, I'm, I, I actually like the guy. I think he's really smart, and I think that he's got an incredibly, uh, he's got a great gift in the way he speaks. But. You know, I am so much more experienced than Mayor Pete. I mean, the city that he uh, that he represented, where, by the way, you get elected mayor by winning 8,000 votes. It's like a school board race in a lot of places. That city had a budget that was a third the size of my old school district's budget. On top of that, I've had 10 years in the Senate to understand what the nature of the corruption is there, how you can get stuff in a bipartisan way, but why the biggest stuff in Washington doesn't get done. I think it's going to be very hard for somebody from a tiny city in, in Indianapolis to be able to hit the ground running. And, and that's what's at stake in this election. We've got, we got to nominate somebody who can beat Donald Trump. I think going to the vice president, we need somebody from a different generation you know, we don't need to uh, nominate somebody from the generation of the Iraq War and from an economy that hasn't worked well for the American people. And we got to start moving the country forward. And that's why I've stayed in this race. It's not been easy to do. Uh, I'm not as well known as the other candidates, and I've had challenges uh, raising money because of, because of the debate rules and other things. But I really believe I'm where New Hampshire voters are. You know, if I look at the politics of Gene Shaheen and Maggie Hassan, I recognize myself in those politics. And I believe 
believe that those are the politics that will ultimately beat Donald Trump. I think far left ideology is not going to beat Donald Trump. A lack of experience is not going to beat Donald Trump. I think I can beat Donald Trump. Let's move to some foreign policy. If you're in the Oval Office right now, what would be your approach to what's going on in Iran with those protests? It would be to, first of all, sanction Iran for killing its own citizens. Uh, and it would be Put it, pulling together the coalition of people that supported the Iran nuclear deal. I mean, you know, I, in my view, the people that are most anxious to have Trump reelected at this point are Vladimir Putin, the Iranians, and the Chinese, because they're basically able to get away with whatever they want to do as long as they don't show up on Fox News. And that's a result of the carelessness and the weakness of President Trump when it comes to foreign policy. We need to reestablish our alliances, not just around Iran, but in Europe as well, to push back on these dictators around the world and we've seen what happens when America doesn't lead it's not a pretty picture is it irrational to ask Iran for greater protections of human rights while you're negotiating the nuclear deal or does that have to be so no, I don't think it's irrational at all in fact for for many years that's the way we conducted our foreign policy we negotiated nuclear deals with the Soviet Union while we said what you're doing to Soviet Jews is totally unacceptable we negotiated with China when we said what you're doing is totally unacceptable now we have a president who can't, can't negotiate with dictators, they push back on him at all, and he collapses, and he abandons our values at the same time. So in China, he won't stand up for Hong Kong. In, in Iran, he won't stand up for the 1,000 people that have been killed there. In Russia, he won't stand up for you know, the folks in Ukraine. And he won't stand up for journalists you know, who are killed by the Saudis. These are things that we have to lead on, because if we don't lead, no one else will and the world will be a far more dangerous place as it is. It is much more dangerous today than it was when Donald Trump became president. Some of the video coming out of that NATO summit, it looked like some world leaders were there basically laughing right. at Donald Trump. When, if you become president, you have to go to someone like a Trudeau and say something like, hey, uh, I don't care what you think about Donald Trump, but I don't ever want to see you laughing at an American president. I, I think that actually you should uh, earn their trust and earn their confidence by not being a laughing stock. You know, I don't think you need to go to them and say, hey, you better not laugh at me. I'm the president of the United States. That in itself is laughable. You got to earn it, you know, and Teddy Roosevelt was the one who said, walk softly and carry a big stick. I think that's that was good. A good philosophy then, it's a good philosophy today. Donald Trump is exactly the opposite, which is talk and talk and talk and talk and be weak. And I believe I can earn the trust of these leaders back. And in fact, the, the very first trip I would take would be to Europe to say, we understand that this transatlantic alliance that we've had for 70 years since we defeated fascism in World War II uh, is on all of our interests and our national security interests uh, to work together to push back on the Russian threat. Senator Bennett, thanks for joining us. Thanks on for having me, Adam. We appreciate your time. If people go to Michael Bennett slash New Hampshire, they'll find a, a town hall that's near them. And we'll be going to a few of those ourselves. Good. So Great. see you there. Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's You Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join You Local. See you there.
President Donald Trump is facing a pair of primary challengers here in New Hampshire. One of them is a former congressman who came to prominence during the Tea Party era earlier this decade. Joe Walsh is our guest this morning. Good to be with you, my friend. Thanks for being here. So it's interesting, of the uh, the folks who were really prominent in the Tea Party rise back in 09 and 10 here in New Hampshire, uh, almost all of them are on board with President Trump. Uh, what happened with you? Uh, that, are you just contrarian, or how are you not on the Trump train? It's a shame. Uh, so many conservatives. I mean, I was a Tea Party conservative when I went to Congress. We cared about the debt. We cared about the size of government. So many Republicans have put those concerns aside, and they just worship at the altar of Donald Trump. It's disappointing, but most Republican voters out there, Adam, in New Hampshire and Iowa, uh, they're tired of Trump. I keep hearing that over and over. How, if you become the nominee and potentially the president, how do you unentangle? Uh, you talked about this sort of the, the, I mean, for lack of another term, the cult of personality that's developed within the party. How do you unentangle Trump from the GOP? Because that's what it's a one-to-one -one right now. It's a one-to-one -one right now. It is, and I'm not the only one who's who said this. The Republican Party is like it's not a political party. It is like a cult. And we Republicans, I mean, we used to make fun of the Democrats a little bit about that when they were that way with Obama. Obama. Yeah. Look, whoever follows this president is going to have to try to unite the country. You can say a lot of things about Donald Trump wherever you are on the political spectrum. He's dramatically divided this country. If I'm the Republican nominee, that's a big part of what I'm going to say is to try to bring people together, even people who disagree on issues. So there would be a stylistic approach that's different. Are oh, there yeah. any differences on policy, though, between you and President Trump? Yeah, the, well, we talked about the debt for one thing. Donald Trump has increased the debt faster than Barack Obama. Shame on us. The border. Trump got elected because of the border. The border is a bigger mess now than it was when Trump got elected. I was just in Iowa two days ago, Adam. His tariffs are killing Iowa farmers. Their tax increases on all all Americans. I'd get rid of his tariffs in a, in a nanosecond. Do you think it's problematic? I mean, this is where a tenet of republicanism and conservatism was free trade. Free trade. Can that just snap back to normal, or is, or is, it, is that going to be forever changed now? Look, here, here's the problem. It's a great question. Even if Donald Trump loses in 2020, if he's the nominee and he loses, he's not going away because all Trump cares about is Trump. So he's going to grab his voters and start his own TV network and try to do whatever he's going to do. The Republican Party is, is in the beginning of a long struggle to get back to what it was, a party of freedom, free trade, limited government, opportunity for everybody. That's why it's important that we talk about these issues now. The Democrats are moving forward with impeachment in the House. Are they making a mistake from a political standpoint? Um, politics be damned. I'm asked that question a lot. If I were in Congress right now, I, as a Republican congressman, I would vote to impeach this president. I'd probably be the only Republican voting to impeach the president. The president of the United States, Adam, used the powers of his office to cheat in the 2020 election. If that's not impeachable, nothing is. Might it hurt the Democrats politically? Maybe, but it doesn't matter. The Constitution is more important than politics. That Constitution uh, was part of the big argument within that Tea Party era. One of your fellow congressmen in the Freedom Caucus, Jim Jordan, uh, is now one of these people who's with Trump. Does that surprise you at all, the way, yeah. the route that he has taken? Well, you guys were, you know, uh, copacetic there back in the day, and now, uh, I guess it seems like if Jim Jordan had to choose between the Constitution and Trump, he would probably choose Trump. Jim Jordan and I were friends. 
um, we fought battles together in Congress. I do not recognize this, Jim Jordan. I don't recognize my former Republican colleagues. We revered the Constitution. We revered our founders. We revered the principles that founded this country. And my former Republican colleagues have thrown all those to the side in, in worship, again, of this president. It's incredibly disappointing. We heard so much about the founding fathers. The one thing George Washington, it seems, you know, no one can, you can always kind of go back in time. What would they think? He was horrified by the idea of uh, foreign powers foreign playing things. a role in our elections. Yeah, we don't hear about that anymore. That's why, again, that's why what President Trump did should infuriate uh, not just every Republican, but every American. I mean, think about this, Adam. I've called President Trump a traitor. Broadly speaking, he is. He's the most disloyal president we've ever had. Why do I say that? In 2016, he encouraged a foreign government to screw with our elections. And then he did the same damn thing this year. Uh, forcing, trying to force another foreign government to mess around with our elections. Uh, that, that's an incredible act of disloyalty. And yet your argument right now has to be with uh, the base of the party. What yeah. do you tell to Republicans who like what President Trump has done on conservative judges and all this slew of other things that he's been able to accomplish that is on that conservative checklist? How do you make that argument to them to try and peel them away? Here's the deal. I'm a conservative. I mean, I've had, I, I have a long time conservative record. Um, if you vote for me, you'll get a lot of the conservative policy that you like, but you will not get the BS with Trump that you get with Trump. You won't get the Donald Trump show. Here's the deal, Adam. Four more years of this guy, nothing's going to get done. Nothing on the climate, nothing on health care, nothing on immigration, because it's going to be Donald Trump 24-7. Uh, again, the Donald Trump reality show uh, in, in your TVs every single minute. Most Republicans are exhausted of that. And yet, on the flip side, if it's a Bernie Sanders, if it's Elizabeth Warren, what's at stake there if someone like that becomes president? Well, then we do what we always did, and we have respectful fights about policy, about, about Medicare for all, about socialism, about health care. But we have policy fights. We can't have that with this president because this president is cruel, he's a racist, he's a bigot, he's dishonest, and it's all about him. I mean, think about this, Adam. You're in this business. When was the last time Donald Trump or anybody in Washington talked about public policy? We don't do it anymore because it's all Trump. So you would rate him as a greater existential threat than, say, the socialist policies or democratic socialist policies of a Sanders or a Warren? It's a difficult thing for me to say, but I've said it before as a conservative Republican, I'd rather have a socialist in the White House than a dictator. I'd rather have Elizabeth Warren in the White House than somebody like Donald Trump who believes he's above the law. You put Elizabeth Warren in the White House, I will fight her tooth and nail on her policy. But what can I do against a king or a dictator? I do think Donald Trump is a much bigger existential threat. You mentioned climate on policy there. Yeah. How have your views evolved on climate change at this point? They have evolved. Look, uh, I was part of the conservative media world, and we'd laugh at and poo-poo the whole notion of climate change because, like with every issue, there are radical elements that have been pushing the notion that the world's going to end tomorrow. But the more I've studied the issue, it's real. The climate's changed. 
changing. It's real. Man has had an impact on it. And so we need to sit at the table so that it's not just the Democrats sitting at the table trying to figure out what to do with climate change and uh, endorsing like the big hand of government's got to do everything. Donald Trump calls climate change a hoax. It's not. It's real. I want to work on real solutions to fix it. It seems like that'll be a big part of the conversation on foreign policy. But if you're president of the United States, what's your approach to foreign policy, and particularly in an instance where we have a genocide or something like that going on in a foreign country, and it may not be in the interest of the United States to intervene? Would you still do that? No. We generally, I mean, my foreign policy notion is we lead by example. We inspire the rest of the world. We challenge the rest of the world. We have the biggest, baddest military in the world, but we don't use it unless we absolutely have to. Our, our men and women should have been home from Afghanistan a long time ago. We shouldn't have troops in Syria. There are plenty of places around the world where our men and women ought to be home. And we encourage countries around the world to engage in democracy and we encourage people to um, help folks around the country but the united states doesn't rush in and plant troops everywhere congressman walsh we thank you for joining us on close-up adam i always enjoy it thanks All right, we'll see you out there on the trail hey facebook recently made some changes now you're missing out on lots of content from wmur but it's easy to stay connected go to wmur's facebook page tap follow then see first that's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. We are just nine weeks out from the primary now, so it's getting very real for both the campaigns, the voters, and, of course, the reporters. Here to give us some first-in-the-nation perspective is political reporter John DeStaso. Good morning, Adam. Thanks How are you? being here, John. Appreciate it. So last week, the Democratic race uh, lost one of its biggest names in Kamala Harris. I know when we were talking about this earlier, you were kind of like, it's time to move on and get over it, Adam. But I'm still <laughs> blown away by the potential that this candidate had and the fact that she is out uh, two, minute, two months before we vote. It was, uh, it was the most mysterious strategy strategy or non-strategy, however you want to phrase it, uh, probably that I've ever seen because Kamala Harris was drawing huge crowds here. She had a big base of support. She had a very good staff. Uh, she had several, you know, sort of grassroots, maybe not huge names, but good grassroots uh, endorse, endorsements from state reps. Uh, I think the potential here in New Hampshire was, uh, you know, unlimited. I'm not sure if she would have won. I think she was the top tier candidate and could have declared a victory, potentially. But for some reason, which I think uh, was certainly uh, just a mistake, big mistake, uh, she followed the pattern of those who have tried to ignore New Hampshire and have not lasted. She lasted a shorter period of time than others have. Yeah, The local campaign, as you pointed out, was excellent. They just didn't have her here often enough. Exactly. This, this does They're have to go down. Them down. Yeah, we know that, right? This has to go down, though, is one of the biggest strategic fails in primary history, topping even Rudy Giuliani with his sort of Florida first approach yes. back in 07 and 08. While the sting has to be there for Harris, it's safe to say this is somebody who could come back here if she decides to run in the future and run here and do pretty well. Well, I think that the potential is here. Uh, I think she has some issues that she has to clear up. She did, uh, to be quite honest, uh, uh, make some inferences about a, a racial issue here, um, but uh, which I know is just not not the case. That she would have to clear that up. But certainly, with her resume and her uh, her her background as a senator, the performance, uh, her actions uh, uh, as a member of the Judiciary Committee with with Kavanaugh and Barr, et cetera, uh, her history as a, as a prosecutor. Um, and her perspective, you know, as an African-American woman who is very successful, 
again, the potential is, is here, uh, was here uh, this year, and it will not, and will continue to be here. Yeah, I'm assuming we'll see her back again someday. So back to the world of the living. Michael Bennett had him <laughs> on the show. Uh, 50 town halls in the coming yeah. nine weeks, really doubling down on New Hampshire. It seems like he's found a little bit of a political second home here. Well, I think that that is what's going to happen. I mean, he's going to dig in here. He's going to make his stand here. He also, of course, has to play well in Iowa, which is a midwestern state right next to his, right near his own. And uh, but this is this is sort of the retail approach that you know. Uh, whether you're a supporter of his or not, that we who are in the business of, of uh, covering the New Hampshire primary uh, appreciate seeing. I think the voters appreciate seeing. Uh, you have him and you have Tulsi Gabbard who's now living here. Right, exactly. Renting a house here. She's gone that local. What about with her? What does a victory look like for Tulsi Gabbard? If she's not going to shock the world and come in first, where can she claim a victory? Well, I think she has to, you know, again, still stand by line, but she has to exceed expectations. What those expectations will be by, the, by February 11th uh, remains to be seen, but I would think that if she uh, breaks into double digits, uh, uh, if she challenges uh, for the lead, I think we're going to have several potential um, winners, if you will, on February, the night of February 11th. We're going to have the sort of the, the local, the neighbors, right, Warren and, and Sanders. And then who's going to win the non-neighbor primary? I think people will be watching for that. People can claim victory if they, if they are the, if they finish, let's say, perhaps third or they are the first. First in that group that is not from New England, and, and that's where Tulsi Gabbard might fit in. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see who tries to pull a Bill Clinton and walk out there first on stage and say, hey, it was a great night. And I think, I think we're going to see a few of those. All right, All right John Staso, thanks Thank for joining you, us on Close thanks. Up. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.